This week on the show, if you can use open source, you can build hardware. This is what the article uh, says here. Good performance is not just big O, as Julio Marino lets us know. Proof you should not run Michael W. Lucas's code. And yeah, definitely don't. Uh, how to add pledge to a program in OpenBSD, a small tutorial by Celine. A 3D printing in OpenBSD has become a reality and a good one, it seems. Getting the right type of certificate is what Dan Langell tries to figure out. Jenny's Daily Driver with FreeBSD 13.2 and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Hmm. BSD Now, episode 528. Pledge the program. Recorded on the 26th of September 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow. Find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. A new episode is finally here for you. Well, you just had to wait a week for us. Uh, it's just <laughs> a usual recording. Um, no matter the circumstances, we have headlines for you. Uh, for example, if you can use open source, it turns out you can build hardware. That's at least what this article on redeem-tomorrow.com is promising. Apparently you can. And... Yeah, yeah, it seems uh, we should uh, look at this more closely because a lot of people are in the open source space, or at least as in the user part. So we might as well uh, build a bit of hardware. But let's start at the beginning. As a technologist, hardware has always been their final frontier. Things you can touch, things you can create physical outcomes, these can have so much more power than software alone. But the cost of that power is complexity. Electrons don't care about your ambitions. Circuits can be harder to debug than code. And even if everything works perfectly on the level of logic and voltage, you're still managing the complexity of physical objects, their wiring, their position in space, and even their heat dissipation. Building any product is hard, but building a hardware product is a superset of the basics of any product challenge adding in the iron constraints of the physical world. It's not enough to imagine how something looks. You also have to find a way to build it in a way that matches your imagination while simultaneously accommodating all these physical constraints. It's work. But also, it's never easier than it is today. They just built a complete replacement for their heat pump controllers. There's a separate article uh, linking to GitHub, actually, so people can uh, find that if they have the same problem. Um, they hated those dinky remotes. You couldn't read them in the dark at all, and programming them was about as bad as anything you remember from the bad old days of ECRs. They imagined something that would solve their UI problems and integrate their heat pumps into their home automation system. They're not an electronics engineer, but my dreams are now, or their dreams are now real. They've got five of these across the house. So there's a picture. You can see, uh, you can see the cooling and the fan setting and how much heat is being uh, used or at the moment is going on. Using open source code is a skill. Knowing how to navigate repos and something else's code, understanding how to troubleshoot and navigate communities to get help, discerning between quality projects and junk. This experience is a hard one component of being a modern software explorer can take you further than you might realize, past mere bits and into the land of electrons and atoms. Of course, microcontrollers. Arduino was a revolution in developer experience. Beginners could write simple C code and have a physical computing experience within the space of five minutes. But since the advent of Arduino, the landscape of microcontroller boards, components that can be programmed to emit and receive complex electronic signals, has exploded. Boards of every scale and configuration are available today, from the size of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich all the way down to a postage stamp. Microcontrollers are the foundation of the hardware adventure, allowing infinite iteration of custom logic on inexpensive components. Different designs support different connectors and accessories. There are also different chip architectures out there and boards built around ESP32 or the new Pico W, even include Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capabilities. Unifying all of this 
our software ecosystems. Open source Arduino code exists to solve so many kinds of problems, from networking to button handling. Regardless of your board's architecture, there's usually a port of the Arduino environment you can use, opening up all that code for your project. If you prefer Python, the MicroPython and CircuitPython projects even offer an alternative to C or C++. Uh, then they talk about uh, Stemma, Qt, and Q, QWIIC, an old standard with new strategy, because that is uh, about I2C. Uh, this is a two-wire serial data standard that's dating to 1982. Uh, in practice, it looks and works a lot like USB. Two more wires and power and ground, and you can chain dozens of devices together on a single bus. And I talk a bit about uh, more about that, how to integrate that into your uh, electronics project. Uh, further down is more on the uh, chip design and working the circuits. Once you create a working circuit, you can take it all a step further, design and manufacture your own custom enclosures. It's really kind of nuts. For $500, you can buy an incredibly reliable 3D printer from Prusa. You can't beat Prusa. The printers come out of the box working perfectly. They're vertically integrated with Prusa's excellent cross-platform slicer software. And the user community is among the most active and helpful of anything on the internet. At that price, its build volume isn't mammoth and it doesn't have to be for electronics project. Yeah, we have one in our... Uh, operating systems lab now uh, students are very interested in that but at the moment only the professors are printing um for testing purposes of yeah, course you're gonna have practice <laughs> exactly right and i'm like yeah can you actually print me some nice uh you know chocolate cake in that uh, right but yeah that, that's coming the replicators are invented sooner or later star trek gonna have star trek <laughs> yeah and then there's no stopping what people will print uh, so they closed the article with, uh, I think you should try it. So they've been dreaming of building their own electronics since they were a kid. They spent so many afternoons at Radio Shack and even tried their hands at the occasional kit with limited success. Every few years in adulthood, they've given it another try, observing a steady downward trend in difficulty. They are telling us we're at a special moment here. The labor savings of open source, composability, the fun, all of it has come to hardware. You can build things that solve real problems for yourself. They first imagined the heat pump devices over a year ago and have been frustrated it didn't exist every day since. Now their dreams are real and the largest energy consumer in the house can be automated and remotely controlled. That's amazing. So check out the full article for any details. There's plenty of links to GitHub projects that uh, have these or to software um, or to vendors where you can like Adafruit, uh, not to make any particular vendor stand out, but where you can get these components if you want to try out uh, sensors and uh, boards and chips. So that is certainly a good introductory article. And my favorite bit, it's called pitches. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ah. Moving on to good performance is not just big O. This is a blog post uh, from a serial operating system blogger, Julio Marino. Having a fast and responsive app is orthogonal to knowing your big O's. Unfortunately, most tech companies overemphasize algorithms in interviews and downplay system knowledge. And I believe that's one reason behind sluggish apps and bloated systems. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to say just in that first paragraph is I think a lot of programmers, if they had to work with constrained systems similar to, you know, like what we had to back in the 80s where you only had a finite amount of memory and you couldn't expand the memory or just like move the dial or give more memory and more storage, uh, I think we'd find a lot of our apps would be a lot more responsive than they are today. I've seen this play out repeatedly. Interviewers ask a leak code style coding question which is then followed by a ritual of discussing time and memory complexity. Candidates ace the answers, but then their real code suffers from subtle yet impactful performance problems. Focusing on big O, complexity rarely matters in most apps. Sure, it's important to think about your algorithmic choices, but there are so many more details to worry about that have direct impact on app performance and responsiveness. Let's look at a bunch of them. On algorithms, is your complex O-N algorithm faster than trivial on O-N squared? Theoretical complexity matters, but know your expected value of N. The linear algorithm may be slower than the quadratic one, 
for your specific scenarios and harder to prove correct. Are you aware of how instances can bite you? E.g., in Java, the list.get generic method will run in O1 time for array list, but in ON time for linked list. And computing dict hash keys is likely not O1. These are not obvious at the call site. Do you grasp how much work fits in a short period of time? One picosecond, nanosecond, microsecond, millisecond, second. They all sound small, but their relatively differences are huge. Map them to one second, 16 minutes, 277 hours, 380 months, and 317 centuries, respectively. Not the same, huh? <laughs> On storage, where does your data live? Different memory storage mediums have vastly different access times. Know the relatively difference in speed between register access. P.S. Layer level one, level two, level three, few nanoseconds. Uh, RAM, many nanoseconds. SSD, microseconds. Hard drive, few milliseconds. And network, many milliseconds. How do you access storage devices? Large sequential I.O. operations are faster than lots of random small ones. This is true for hard disks. The seek time is around 3 to 10 milliseconds, but also of SSDs due to the fact that processing more ops takes more processing time. What about the file system on top of those drives, ext4, zfs, ntfs? They are all vastly different and the types of I.O. patterns that work well in one may be slower in another. Are you accessing an SSD or an old spinning hard disk? Hard disks still exist. It might be safe to assume SSDs for certain apps, but not always. An example is users may store large photo libraries on hard disks. Can you handle I.O. from those efficiently? Are you doing pure data copies via the CPU? There are many features like DMA to offload data transfers to I.O. devices, and there are features to minimize user space and kernel copies. But in any case, memory bandwidth isn't free and is rarely thought about. On networking, do you know that the high latency usually limits the maximum bandwidth? Bandwidth and latency are two orthogonal metrics. Most network apps will probably feel fine on a low bandwidth connection, but will feel terrible on a high latency one. Simulate those scenarios. How do you handle high network latency? Does your code block slowing down everything else? Do you have to block the UI? Can you schedule other work to happen in the meantime? How many network requests do you need per interaction? Each request adds multi-millisecond penalty and every request increase the chances of hitting high latency. If a service you depend on gives you P50 equals 10 milliseconds, then P99 is one second. You'll hit a one second delay if you send 100 requests. How do you handle retries on failed requests? Any retry will tank performance and how you expose or hide what's going on can make a world of difference. Perception matters. On data handling, are you using your database's query facility or are you fetching all the data and then filtering it on your own? Databases can perform elaborate queries favor running those on the database. The server is closer to the data and you'll minimize network transfers. Are your database queries degrading the full table scans? Maybe you don't have the right indexes or partitioning schemes to support the quorum queries your app needs. Analyze and profile your query execution. You probably don't need to jump to NoSQL. How many log messages do you admit? Logging is not free. It has a cost on performance. I've seen servers spend 20% of their CPU just for background logging all the time. And noisy logs also have an operational cost. On CPU and memory, how do you lay large amounts of data in memory? What are the access patterns? Cache locality matters. Remember the relatively differences in access time between level one, two, and three caches versus main memory. Days versus years if scaled up. How data intensive are your tight loops? It's easy to think about CPU speed, RAM usage, and I.O. times, but memory bandwidth is a fourth dimension that almost nobody thinks about and has become scarier with faster CPUs and I.O. 
on concurrency? Do you take advantage of multiple cores? Single cores aren't getting faster fast enough anymore, but computers usually have cores to spare. Can you use them at all effectively? Do you use multiple threads to parallelize CPU intensive operations, or do you use them to handle blocking IO? In the former case, you want as many threads as cores. In the latter, switching to an event loop model may work better than a large thread pool. Do you perform expensive computation on the thread that's responsive to the app's UI? This will introduce pauses and render your app unusable for periods of time, which will make it feel slow. Perception matters once again. On graphics, are you rendering directly onto the screen? Flushing your drawing operations right away? Read on double buffering, but beware of the latency you introduce by delaying the final display. Are you leveraging your graphics card features or are you drawing on the CPU? Contrary to popular belief, fancy desktops effects aren't, are not expensive if done on the GPU and actually doing them on the GPU free CPU resources. On development time. How much performance are you leaving on the table by coding faster in an interpreted language? Computers might be fast enough now, but interpreted languages tend to be slower than compiled ones and may make the overall system sluggish. How big is your compiled app? Multi-megabyte apps are a problem when you download it over the network, but they are also a problem on the disk because they are slow to install and uninstall. Big apps may run fast, but they start slow. Perception matters. How long does your code take to compile? If it takes too long, the team suffers and features and bugs fixes will be delayed. Different choices in how you write code and how you modularize it can be big differences in productivity. How long does the test take to run? If they take too long, they won't be run on every commit, introducing friction for everyone else down the road and delaying product launches. That's all I could think of for now. I'm not a performance expert at all, but I do like systems and enjoy thinking about the holistic behavior. If you have any tips, feel free to contact them uh, uh, in the thread below and I might incorporate them into the list. And you can go to the link on the bsdnow.tv website on the show notes and you can go back to the article itself and uh, contribute with the discussion. It's time for the news roundup this week. We have an article from Celine, ever busy on the data swamp, uh, blogging uh, how to add pledge to a program in OpenBSD this time. Uh, so the intro reads, this article is meant to be a simple guide explaining how to make use of the OpenBSD-specific feature, pledge, in order to restrict the software capability for capabilities for more security. So while pledge fails in the sandboxing feature, or falls, not fails, falls, while pledge falls in the sandboxing features, it's different than the traditional sandboxing we are used to see because it happens within the source code itself and can be really tightened. Actually, many programs require a lot of privileges like reading files, doing DNS, etc. When initializing, then those privileges could be removed. This is possible with Pledge, but not for traditional sandboxing wrappers. In OpenSD, most of the base user land have support for Pledge, and more and more packaged software, including Chromium and Firefox, received some code to add Pledge. If a program tries to use a system call that isn't in Pledge, promises or Pledge's promises list, it dies and the violation is reported in the system log. What makes Pledge pretty cool is how it's easy to implement in your software. It has a simple mechanism of system call families, so you don't have to worry about listing every system call, but only their categories named promises, like reading a file, writing a file, executing binaries, etc. So she uh, links to the OpenBSD manual page for pledge, uh, if you want to dig deeper. Uh, so let's pledge a program. Uh, she found a small utility that she will use to illustrate how to add pledge to a program. The program is QPrint, a C-coded printable encoder and decoder. This kind of converter is quite easy to pledge because most of the time they only take an input, do some computation and make an output. They don't run forever and don't do network. So she uh, links to the QPrint official project page in case people want to familiarize 
themselves what the software first. So digging in the sources and extracting the sources, we can find a bunch of files. We will focus on reading the C files. The first thing we want to find is the function main. It happens the main function is in the file qprint.c. It's important to call pledge as soon as possible in the program, most of the time after variable initialization. So to modify the code, she added pledge to a program or adding pledge to a program requires to understand how it works because some features that aren't often used may be broken by pledge and some programs have live reloading or being able to change behavior during runtime are complicated to pledge. Within the function main below variables declaration, we will add a call to pledge for standard IO because the program can display the result of the output R path because it can read files and W path as it can also write files. So she does uh, pledge stdio R path W path in quotes and then comma null. That's the function call for pledge. It's okay. We imported the library providing pledge and called it from within. But what if the pledge call fails for some reason? We need to ensure it worked or abort the program. Let's add some checks. So she wraps that in an if statement. So if that returns minus one, for example, uh, error uh, is called and then give a, giving a message pledge called in work or whatever similar message. This is a lot better now. If pledge can fail, the program will stop and we will be warned about it. I don't know exactly under which circumstances it could fail, but maybe if promise name changes or doesn't exist anymore in the program, that would be bad if pledge silently failed. So then she has a chapter or a section on testing. Now we made some changes to the program. We need to verify it's still working as expected. Fortunately, QPrint comes with a test suite, which can be used with make ringer. If the test suite pass and the tests have a good coverage, this means we may have not broken anything. If the test suite fails, we should have an error in the output of the message telling us why it failed. And it failed. QPrint, pledge, CPath, syscall5. Hmm. This error, which killed the PID instantly, indicates that the pledge list is missing CPath. This makes sense because it has to create new files if you specify an output file, CPath being create path. Adding CPath to the list and running the test suite again, all tests pass. Woohoo! Now we exactly know how the software can't do anything except using the system calls we whitelisted at the beginning. We could tighten pledge more by dropping R path if the file is read from standard in and C path W path if the output is sent to standard out. I left this exercise to the reader. So she provides the div as well if people want to uh, look at that directly. Then she has a section on using pledge in non-C programs. Uh, it's actually possible to call pledge in other programming language. Perl has a library provided in OpenBSD space system that will work out of the box. For other calls, such library may be packaged already for Python or Golang at least. If you use something less common, you can define an interface to call the library. And she links to that particular man page for the library. Uh, she demonstrates that with a common Lisp uh, program. Uh, she shows how that is done. You can find that in her article, of course. Extras. Uh, it's possible to find which running programs are currently using Pledge by running uh, PSAUXWW and then pipe that to org, getting uh, eighth column. Oh, I'm not sure what the rest is doing. Um, any PID with a state containing P indicates it's pledged. Ah, okay, yeah, that's the PS from last episode, remember, where you can find the outputs. And there's a P column, or there's a column for P that shows whether a program has been pledged or not. If you want to add pledge to a package program in OpenBSD, make sure it's still fully working. And adding pledge to a program that contains most promises won't be doing much. Uh, exercise for the reader. Now, if you want to practice, you can tighten the pledge calls to only allow QPrint to use the pledge standard IO, only in the case it's used in a pipe for input and output like this. QPrint, you know, give it some input and the output uh, should go to output.txt. Ideally, it should add the pledge CPath WPath only when it writes into a file and RPath only when it has to read a file. So in the case of using standard in and standard out, only standard IO would have been added at the beginning. Good luck, have fun. Concluding, the system call pledge is a wonderful security feature that is reliable. And as it must be done in the source code, the program isn't run from within a sandboxed environment that may be possible uh, to escape. 
she can't say pledge can't be escaped, but she thinks it's a lot less likely to be escaped than any other sandbox mechanism, especially since the program immediately dies if it tries to escape. Next time, she'll present a companion system called Unveil, which is used to restrict access to the file system, except some, except some developer-defined files. Oh yeah, that's interesting, and we'll probably have this in a future episode. Great roundup there. Next on the news roundup is a blog post from Michael W. Lucas um, titled Proof You Should Not Run My Code, My SNMP Agent. So it looks like the time has come from his SNMP mastery OID uh, that he built uh, has come around to cause some havoc. I've included bits of my code in my books, sure, always with warnings to not run it in production as I am a firm devotee of fault-oblivious computing. You should not follow my example, but after a Fediverse Mastodon discussion last night, I've decided to share the code of a program I wrote and deployed in production. When writing SNP Mastery, I needed to understand how to integrate a custom agent into a net SNMP. I also needed to go through the process of getting my own Enterprise OID. I submitted the OID request right before Christmas 2019 and 55030 was assigned the next day. So I promptly wrote my own SNMP agent, used top notch, state of the art Perl 4. <laughs> There's compatibility glue to make it run under Perl 5, but it's basically Perl 4. Yes, there's other languages. But Perl is eternal and timeless. Like COBOL and SNMP, that is not dead, which can eternal sleeping lie. Yeah. This agent is the single source of truth for my published bibliography. Instructions for accessing it are in the SNMP book, but if I'm sharing the code, I should provide context. Browse to HTTPS slash slash cdn.mwl.io slash snmp and you'll find the MIB file, twp.mib. Put that in your snmp browser or MIB directory. If you're running net snmp, you can pull the table with snmp table minus b2c minus c mega dwib snmp.mwl.io mwl books table. Uh, get the full context from that in the show notes. The file agent twp.pl includes the agent proper. This code has been called comically evil, which warns my bitter, which warms my bitter heart. Yes, I could use a database, but why? The data changes three to four times a year if I'm productive. And yes, the data is in columns, not rows. SNMP doesn't do rows. It doesn't really do tables. It only has col columns, which you could choose to arrange side by side, but that's a feeble human thing and irrelevant to this primordial protocol. In writing this, I had to choose between complex code and simple data, or simple code and complex data. Given that updates consist of adding an entry to the end of each column, I chose simple code. Yes, there's an occasional painful update where I realize that I missed one of my old books, but those are increasingly rare. Anyway, if you want a truly complete checklist of what I've written, here it is. Other writers have spreadsheets or text documents, or perhaps, if they're truly prolific, desktop databases. But no, I had to do this. Too long didn't read? Do not run my code. That's one reason why I don't use GitHub. This is not a sample or example. It's an inspiration for you to recoil in horror and do better. I also insist on controlling my platforms and I don't control GitHub. I'm certain that this will be presented as an exhibit in my inevitable eventual sanity hearing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He has a way with words. Yeah, Lucas writes better books than source code. And uh, I guess that's the... The, you have the better part of that. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up is uh, 3D printing and OpenBSD. Yes, that's a thing. Over on Undeadly Orc, where the what else can you do with it department tells us, can you really do 3D printing on, uh, from OpenBSD? 
cue suspenseful music whilst I formulate my answer, which is... Yes! If you aren't familiar with the 3D printing process, it's divided into several steps, vaguely analogous to writing, compiling and running a program in a compiled language. So the design phase, or CAD, the design tool gets you from an idea to an exact specification, like writing and editing a source code file. The most common format for these is STL, standing for Stereolithography, what 3D printing was originally called. Then there's slicing, converts to layers, uh, the slicing converts the file from STL to G code, analogous to compiling a program. These codes represent each layer with a set of movements for the 3D print head to follow. The G-code format originated decades ago for use in numerical controlled machining, and the pioneers of 3D printing wisely adopted and adapted this format for the needs of 3D printers. And then the download to a 3D printer. The downloading is analogous to loading a compiled program into a program that can run it, like QMU or the Java runtime. The G-code is interpreted by the 3D printer to make the finished article. Okay, uh, then they have specific sections about design, slicing and downloading. Uh, Open ASCAD, for example, has been in ports for quite some time. At G2K23, they worked on a port of another 3D CAD tool, SolveSpace, ported by Johannes Tyson Tishman and Jerome Casper, and imported uh, by them shortly after. Who wrote this article, by the way? Ah, Ian Darwin. Okay. Um, they did some work on the replacement for OCE, needed for 2.6.1, uh, but that won't down inconclusively. Then in September 2023, Renato Aguiar circulated his completed port of Prusa Slicer 252. They needed to try this out at once. They took the 45-minute print job formatted with OpenSCAT, see the above under design, slided with the Prusa Slicer and it printed fine, all on OpenBSD. So with feedback from Johannes and OK from JCS, they committed the port to the tree in mid-September 2023. This was the last major step in completing the ability to do 3D printing, since the downloading step uh, doesn't need any new software to be ported. Uh, so note that despite being from Prusa, this software can slice and dice STL code for almost any modern printer, either FDM, filament, or SLA with resin. It comes with profiles for a large range of printers, but even if your printer isn't already known, you can probably configure it to work. In fact, some Prusa competitors like Bamboo Labs make their own slicers, no, uh, based on Prusa or Prusa Slicer. Prusa Slicer is turn, uh, in turn was based on an earlier slicer called Slice3R. Yeah, thank you, nerds. Uh, open source works that way. Okay. Um, the downloading step could be completed by SneakerNet, putting the file on a USB stick and walking it over to the printer, but that's pretty low bandwidth. There are at least two better ways. There's a free open source project called OctoPrint that provides great downloading and monitoring of most 3D printers. This software can be run on a Raspberry Pi, where it's called OctoPi, connecting to most brands of printers via USB. There's also downloads for other platforms, such as Android. The standard version is controlled by a web browser like Firefox on your desktop, and it's used for sending files to your printer, starting and monitoring them, etc. With the Prusa MK4 printer, you don't even need the Raspberry Pi. Prusa's printer firmware includes a built-in web server and a web app called Prusa Link. This is invoked from your desktop just by giving the printer's Ethernet or Wi-Fi IP4 address on the browser URL, and you log in with a username of Maker and a password randomly chosen by the printer itself, available on the printer's LCD screen. There's no UI for changing this password, so one suspects it's a hash on the printer's serial number. Uh, of course. I've used Prusalink a lot over uh, via Ethernet and it has been reliable, though they've heard complaints from people using it over Wi-Fi. So happy ending at the end. I'm glad to say uh, that we can now perform the whole 3D print workflow on OpenBSD. Very nice. Uh, use one of the design tools, OpenSCAT or SolveSpace, to generate the STL file. Use Prusa Slicer to generate the G-code, then use Prusa Link or OctoPrint via Firefox or Chromium to feed the G-code from your desktop to the printer and to start and monitor the printing. Everything you need is no, BSD Poets tree now and will be included in packages soon, probably by the time you read this. Thanks to Johannes and Renato for working on the Prusa Slicer and to everyone else who helps to make OpenBSD usable as a one-and-all operating system. The future work includes... Uh, 
an upgrade to the Prusa slicer from 2.5.2 to 2.6.1, which will bring major improvements and the addition of additional CAD tools, perhaps free CAD. All right, start printing, everyone. Well, get a printer first, but <laughs> you know how then you're unstoppable. Moving on to a recent post on the Dan Gills of a diary. Uh, so this is one you're going to have to follow along at home because I'm not going to go through all the error messages and the console output because there's yeah. quite a significant amount in this story. So you're going to have to follow along at home and I will and cut through the chase on the sections between the error log outputs and the console output. Getting the right type of certificate. This post covers my debugging of a self-signed certificate on one of my barrac um, bacula, I was going to say barracuda, uh, bacula instances. The error message is, um, so it goes into uh, what it is with the self-signed certificate, is encountered that unsupported certificate purpose message before. And in two different areas, he's uh, had blocked about that previously, which is OpenVPN unsupported certificate purpose and SSL client versus server certificates and Bacula FD. I always thought it was a server versus client issue. Now I'm not so sure, he says. There was also a SSL admin issue. In this post, he's used a FreeBSD 13.2 SSL admin 1.3.0 and Bacula 9.6.7. Yes, that's rather outdated and it's on his list to do. Trying again. Looking at the cert causing the above problem, I found these attributes under the X509 v3 extensions. It was these extensions that raised the SSL admin issue referenced above. Note the above cert was created with SSL admin 1.3.0. Let's try a server cert. I created a new cert using SSL admin 1.3.0 that certificate contained this, and it goes into the extensions and constraints. Interestingly, I looked at a few certificates used by other Bacula clients. None of them had X509 v3 extensions. That certificate gives this error, and then it's the error log there. Now the problem occurs when talking to a 10.55.0.7 Bacula SD, so he's referenced his home server, and that's the destination for this backup. Is it the authorization key, he asks. Let's go through this slowly. It's 6.30am on a Saturday morning, and I've been awake since 5am with a cough. My brain is not the best today. This is the only client having troubles with backups. It is also the newest client. It is the one that's using the new certs. I have confirmed that the passwords for the R730 uh, in both the Bacula DER configuration and the Bacula FD configuration match. This is confirmed by the status client test shown below. So is it the authorization key or is it the STIR status? I have confirmed that status client succeeds and then you get the output of the uh, terminated jobs and running jobs. Note the empty job history under terminated jobs. This client has never run a backup. A solution. My solution, he asks. I went back to my patch mentioned in the SSL admin issue. Then I created a client cert. It works. Let's work this out. Next step. Let's talk about this on the Bacula user mailing list. Clearly, there is something up with which needs to be sorted out. Some problems with Bacula SD certs. This section was added on the twenty uh, on the tenth of the 9th, twenty twenty-three, or should I say twenty twenty-three oh nine ten? So it's the tenth of September, twenty twenty-three. Today I solved another issue with the certs Bacula SD. Can use a cert with the X five oh nine V three extensions, but only if it is not the destination for a copy job. I suspect migrate jobs would also have the same problem, but I've not tested it. This is the error I see when using an X509 v3 extension with the receiving Bacula SD. In this job, Bacula SD01 SD is the origin of the job to be copied. 10.55.0.7 is Bacula SD04, the destination of the copy. Already had copy jobs working from Bacula SD. 01 SD to Bacula SD 03 SD. So I checked the certificate on the ladder. It did not contain the X509 V3 extensions. 
and then here's the successful job. And he's got the, the log for the successful job. This output comes in another email and then there's more output there. So his current theory. The receiving SD is acting as an FD with respects to the sending SD. 10.55.0.7 is the receiving SD. The port number not being 9103 tells me that the connection was initiated by the receiving SD. I suspect the connection fails because of the X509V3 extensions, much like they do if Bacula FD certificate contains them. In both cases, the node is acting like an FD and the extensions on the certificate do not permit it to act like a client. I suspect the underlying error is an unsupported certificate purpose, much like the one at the top of this post. Hopefully we can get this sorted out within the Bacula project. Which ports are used? Let's look at the port connection during multiple concurrent copy jobs. This is on the receiving host, and as you can see, it has both incoming and outgoing connections on port 9103. So 10.55.0.4 is the Bacula DER, 10.55.0.36 is Bacula SD01, which is the source of the copy jobs, and 10.55.0.7 is the Bacula SD04, which is the destination of copy jobs. And it's got a um, socket stat list for the 9103 ports there as you can see so hopefully he has a follow-up to this where we can find out what the particular issue is and um, if they get to the bottom of it in the Bacula uh, project oh yeah would be nice to have a conclusion for that and Dan is always very detailed with his error report so uh, people can compare if they have the same issue or found something based on uh, something he posted uh, from the error messages he shows. I think Dan also uses this as a, a, a ti uh, timely reminder of one he's had this particular issue before. He can search his own blog and find find yeah. where he's had. Like, <laughs> I solved this his, five years yeah, ago. Mm. Yeah, look at his citations. He's got his uh, unsupported certificate purpose there, and he's got his two links. So uh, he's even referencing <laughs> back to his uh, previous uh, issues he's had this before. Yeah, this is good. Too. That's why people block and provide these kinds of inputs. All right. Uh, next up is Jenny's Daily Drivers over at HackerCat. No, HackerDay, actually. HackerDay.com. And this is uh, FreeBSD purging not two in this case. So last month, she started a series in which uh, she tries out different operating systems with the aim of using them for their everyday work. And uh, her pick was Slackware 15, the latest version of the first Linux distro she tried back in the mid-1990s. Uh, she'll be back with more Linux-based operating systems in due course, but the whole point of this series is to roam as far and wide as possible and try every reasonable OS she can. Thus, today, I am making the obvious first sideways step and trying a BSD-based operating system. These are uncharted waters for her, and there was a substantial choice to be made as to which one. So after reading around the, the subject, uh, she settled on FreeBSD as it seemed the most accessible. First, a bit of context. Most readers will be, or listeners as well, uh, will be aware that the BSD operating systems trace the heritage in a direct line back to the original AT&T Unix. While GNU Linux is a pretty good Unix clone originating with Linus Torvalds in the early 1990s and Richard Stallman's GNU project from the 1980s onward. This means that for Linux users, there's a difference in language to get used to. Well, Linux is a kernel around which distributions are built with different implementations of the user land components, the various BSD operating systems are different operating systems in their own right. Thus, we talk about, for example, Slackware and Debian as different Linux distributions, but by contrast, NetBSD and FreeBSD are different operating systems even if they have a shared history. There are BSD contributions such as GhostBSD, which use FreeBSD as its core, but it's still a far less common word in this context. So she snagged the FreeBSD 13.2 USB stick file from the torrent and rolled it to a USB flash drive. Out with the Hackaday test PC and on with the show. Unexpectedly easy to install. Installing FreeBSD was as simple as booting from the live USB drive and running the install script. The feel is very old school with a text-based interface, but it was all pretty plain sailing. There's an option for automatically partitioning the disk and then selecting some base services to install if you need them, and then it goes through the process of installation. At the end, you have a working FreeBSD operating system. A typical popular Linux distro install will try to configure your system and install the software you'll need. 
So as part of the setup, you'll create users and either select from a vast software library or let it install a lot of software among, which will be the programs you need. The chances are it will also configure itself to boot into a graphical desktop and once the install is finished, there's nothing more to do except uh, get on with using it as a desktop machine. If that's what you expect from an operating system, uh, then it's fair to say that FreeBSD is not for you because it takes the approach of giving you a blank canvas upon which you can write your own story. You get FreeBSD, a command prompt uh, into which you can log in as root, and that's it. Your first task is to add an everyday user for yourself using add user. And before you can even give yourself sudo privileges, you have to install sudo. Wasn't that the regular user part of the installation process, I'm wondering? But yeah, let's go back. Uh, this gives your first use of the package program manager, which is a long time user of equivalent Linux distro package managers she found easy enough to use. She wanted a desktop environment, so it was off to package again to install X in the desktop environment. Uh, she went with Lumina, but there are plenty of choices and such useful applications as Firefox, GIMP, Open, SCAD, and KiCad. None of this was particularly challenging, though she did have to search for a few online guides to configure the desktop environment. Uh, so make sure your hardware is new enough, but not too new. So while it requires a little bit of familiarity with the Unix or Unix-like OS to get started, getting into a desktop computer for daily use in FreeBSD is pretty straightforward. And that meant it was uh, she was pretty ready to write this article, with one exception. Her video card is an NVIDIA GT520, a pretty ancient GPU that had been dropped into the test PC as a replacement for a younger car that had gone on to new pastures. FreeBSD does come with drivers out of the box in the way that a uh, fully featured Linux distro does. So if you have something unusual, then it's up to you to find and install a driver. So she was stuck with the VESA resolutions and sure she could install a driver and here she hit a snack. NVIDIA, NVIDIA are good at supporting their cards with FreeBSD drivers, but one of these ancient had uh, dropped out of their support long ago. The last one she could find supporting it didn't want to play ball, so she never managed to unleash uh, her GPU's potential. Ah, that's bad. This is not criticism of FreeBSD, it's an ancient card. Uh, there's someone in the comments in the article that mentions that there was a way to get to this older card get this working because there's a port still available that could have provided the necessary driver but not uh, too important here um, thus this piece has been written in a very retro feeling 1024 by 768 VESA resolution but aside from that she's come uh, away rather liking FreeBSD she liked its stripped down installation on which in contrast to a typical Linux distro must install everything you need uh, she liked how that the installation process was relatively painless for medium expertise Linux user like her. She liked also its speed and she's found it very accessible daily driver indeed. There are certainly Linux distributions whose installation is far less easy. So she's sure uh, with a newer supported video card she would have had the full resolution and it's an operating system she, uh, she may even put on another PC with better specs to continue experimenting with. If she has a gripe with FreeBSD, though, it's in the documentation for newbies. Uh, she had her years of experience with Linux to help her find what she needed. But even though the installation process is relatively painless, she found the answers to uh, a few of her queries could be difficult to prize out. Okay, fair point. It's definitely an OS to look at, but occasionally you'll need to exercise elite Google-foo if you're not a Unix servant. Go on, give it a try. Uh, that's an excellent article there for somebody that's getting out of the Linux mold and into the BSD mold. Yeah, if you're uh, and a lot of, switching. And a, lot of the, a lot of the things that uh, she had issues with as she went along through this article will probably rectify themselves as she learns the FreeBSD way of doing things. So, yeah, the, I don't think this is going to be too much of an issue for her moving forwards. And I think using a bit more modern hardware will yeah. give her a better experience. Yeah, we've all started somewhere and had many of these uh, stumbling blocks that uh, were not uh, as difficult, but we still needed to do a bit more looking around. Uh, but we still kept on and kept the interest. Uh, otherwise, we've given up long ago and <laughs> never come to this path. Uh, so, yeah, a bit of frustration, but there's plenty of resources out there where people can find the information they're looking for or ask people in a chat or Discord or all the other ways uh, to get the information they needed to let get the last bits of things that don't work quite out of the box yet uh, to run. And to be honest, we like 
we like a challenge. That's why we we play with the. Th- oh, yeah. That's why we play with computers. <laughs> and uh, if, oh, yeah. if everything is just too easy, plain sailing, then you know we're not going to have much fun. And just like you know, oh, it's installed, and now you go out and do something else. It's like no, I like a challenge, and that's half the fun. Yeah, and we also try to make it easy uh, for people to use it, uh, or our uh, impl- <laughs> our in yeah informed way of saying easy. Um, we, we it's still an operating system people should use and it should not be too difficult to get started with um and there's still of course always the discussions about whether the installer could be better or should have been rewritten in the first place um but so far so good people that are new find their way around and um can get the system up and running well as we discussed in episode 527 uh, we touched on ghost bsd and uh, you know, when we've got Nomad BSD as well, mm. uh, they're all different uh, implementations of the FreeBSD base, but with uh, a spin on it to uh, make it a bit more attractive to uh, new users uh, of the BSD environments. So, you know, there's, yeah. there's those options as well. And then, you know, once you get the familiarity with uh, the Ghost BSDs, uh, for example, you know you start to work with what's going on under the hood and then you go okay well i'd like to build my own and you know a lot of us do do that we do go out of our way to you know tweak and put our own spin on our own build uh using Mm. you know some of us have got meta packages and things like that we pull in to uh bring up our own equipment to just the way we like it yeah yeah for the beginners it's easier to start with the desktop and then go down back to the terminal at one point but yeah as you said we uh, soon end up in the weeds of uh, packages sub packages <laughs> building our own packages or configuring the operating system the way we want BSD now is sponsored by tarsnap everyone needs backups and tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe but also secure your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Very well. Uh, we leave you with that. I guess you have plenty of things you want to do on your own BSD now that you have a bit of fresh ideas, uh, hopefully from our episode this week. Uh, there will be another one next week, of course. It's like clockwork. Um, uh, if you want to have something in there that you found on the internet, a nugget that we should cover in the future, uh, let us know at feedback.bsdnow.tv. This is our uh, address where you can also provide us questions that we try to cover in the feedback section that we didn't cover yet. Um, But there will be a couple of questions in future episodes. Excellent. Catch you later.